I'd like for you to open your Bibles to the 139th Psalm, Psalms 139. A couple of weeks ago, I spoke on the unique work of God, the work that God does in a person, the work that only God can do. You can't finish the work that he started, but he that started the work will finish it. And he has to do this in preparation for eternity. He starts, he finishes. Then last time, last week, I talked about the unique ability of God, that God is able to do, remember in Ephesians 3, he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you ask or think according to the power that works in you. The power that works in you is God himself. Because in Philippians 2, it said, God is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And I promise you that whatever God wants to do, he can do it and he will do it. And there is nothing impossible with God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. He is God. He created the worlds and all that is visibly in existence with a word. He spoke a word and it became. And he's God. Now, that's who we are called to relate to. And yet, as I think I said last week, a lot of people still stand back and wonder as they look at their problems and their circumstances and all the prognostications of the political world or the medical world or the financial world. And there just seems like so much doom and gloom and darkness settles on people. They just don't know what they're going to do. And yet, God says... Ask and you shall receive. And yet people think, well, I don't know if I... It's like we don't know him. We really don't know God. All we know about the concept of God. And a lot of people have a religion of concept. They have a conceptual religion. They have an idea of what he must be like and who he must be. And they try to relate to him on the idea of concepts. You know, God must be like, the, you know, or I would assume he's like, and that's how they try to relate to him. And they don't know him. They really don't know him. Remember the verse, maybe you do, or perhaps you don't, a verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. God said, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Or let the mighty man boast in his might, or the rich man boast in his riches. But he said, but if you're going to boast, boast about this, that you know and understand God. That is, of all the supreme things that a man should set back and feel a sense of security and accomplishment and goodness about, it's that you know God. We can never know God unless he reveals himself to us. And as I have found in the Bible, God usually reveals himself to people as they are taught that things are presented to us out of the Bible. This is who God is. This is what God does. This is what God is like. This is who you can relate to. This is why you can have peace and not worry about anything because God has promised 8,000 promises in Scripture. There's not a need in your life you could have that there's not a promise to meet it. We of all people should be at peace and walk joyfully before the Lord because he has presented himself to us as our father, as God. Come to the throne of grace, didn't he say that? 
He said, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may obtain mercy and help in time of need. God wants your presence there. He is your God. He sits enthroned above all the earth and also in your heart. And yet, we don't know that. Now, we know about that because we're good at academics. You know, we like to learn things and, and learn facts, but they haven't become knowledge. It's like things in our mind that's not in our hearts. And God wants you to know him. He don't want you to look at him as some celestial Santa Claus that you go to only when you hurt or when you have a need, but he wants you to know him, to relate to him on the basis of who he is, not what you can get, but just who he is. Now, in Psalm 139 today, two more things are revealed about God. Last week, it was mostly about his omnipotence, omnipotent. Omni means all, and potent means power. God is all-powerful. That's why he has ability, unique ability, because nobody else, nothing else can have the same said about them that are said about God. Nothing. He is unique. Today, two other unique features about God that are clearly seen in Psalm 139, and we want to talk about them this morning, is that God knows everything. He is omniscience. That's how you spell it, omniscience, omniscience. And he is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and he knows everything, and he has all might and all power. Now, I know we know about this. We've heard this before. We're probably well-versed in facts about God. But again, that doesn't mean we know him, that we are comfortable with that, that we trust in that, or that we have peace about these statements the Bible makes about God. But we want this word to settle in our hearts so that we can, with our eyes, as the psalmist said, Open mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things from thy law. If he doesn't, we can't. But we're here. We pray that he does. I have already prayed that he will. And that our eyes will be open, that we can engage God and become related to him in a way that we just become quiet and staying in awe. We call this the fear of God. When the eye of your heart begins to see who he is, and what he is, and what little you are, and what you're not. Like the psalmist says, what is man? That you're even mindful of him in light of man as a weak creature. Christians are the weakest of creatures because they constantly have needs. And if you're poor in spirit, it means you need something every day. And we see ourselves like that finally. We get rid of our pride. We get rid of our accomplishments and our boast about how well we've done in life. We begin to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, and we sincerely raise our hands and eyes to God with thanksgiving because we see who he is. This is what happens when God begins to show himself to his people. I don't want to get too far off track here, but in John 14, Jesus said, If you have my word and you keep it, you love me. And this is what happens when you love me. He said, if you love me, the Father and I will begin to reveal ourselves to you. On the basis of your willingness to do what he said, he will begin to show you who he is. And he becomes more than the promise you wanted. God becomes bigger than the promise.
life takes on new meaning. You can actually walk in peace in this life with a smile on your face, with joy in your heart, because you can know that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Some people really do know that. Now, have you found Psalm 139? I've given you a long time to find it. Notice how often here God reveals that he knows everything and that he is everywhere so that never any time, not even once in this life, are you ever alone. Okay? O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my down-sitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. You comprehend or search or compasseth my path and my lying down. And you're acquainted with all my ways. Is he? For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Is that true? Before you speak it? Is it possible that God, before you speak a word, he knows you're going to say that? Verse 5, thou hast beset me or hemmed me in or hedged me in behind and before and laid thy hand upon me. You are surrounding me, Lord. Where shall I go from thy spirit or where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Hell would mean place of departed spirits. Could be a grave site, could be a tomb, and it could be hell, the place of departed spirits in judgment. But he said, no matter where I am, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. No matter where he sends you, he is there with you. See, he said he was. Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the night are both alike unto thee. For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. This is a case against abortion. He said, you formed me in my mother's womb. Now notice, what he formed, he called a me, or a you, or a person. In the forming process, God refers to a me, or a you, a person, a somebody, not a it, or a thing, or a mass, but a me, or a you, a person. You formed me. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works that my soul knoweth right well. My substance, my frame, my bones was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought or skillfully or intricately wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, probably referring to the womb. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. One translation says, thou saw me as an embryo. I was not perfected yet. All the things that are going to be at birth weren't as developed and full as birth, but I was still a me. I was still a me. That's not a mass, some growth in a woman's body. It is a you, a me. It is a somebody. 
And verse 17, how precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the number of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely you will slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies take thy name in vain. This is the mass of society, especially today more than any other time. A man who comes to know God is highly offended at the sinfulness of mankind. He is offended at the way people talk about God that he is describing. You are beyond my understanding. And I am offended by the way people treat you and the way people talk about you. Verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee? Am I not grieved with those that rise up against thee? That might even include a lot of people that we run around with as friends who have no interest in God but are really anti-God in their life, in their speech, in their thoughts, in their manner, in their demeanor. And yet, we sort of put up with them anyway because they're fun to be with. Verse 22 said, I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. We'll save the last two verses for later. This psalm tells us things about God. We've read it before. I'm sure at some time in your life you've read it. But it's the psalmist writing about knowledge that he has. And it's not just the psalmist's mind writing these down because all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so what is written down here is God describing himself to a man who has discovered him. He said, there's nobody like you. There's nowhere in the world that a man can be that you're not there. There's not a thing he can do, plan to do, or speak to do that you don't know it before he does it. You even knew us before we were born into this world when we were in an embryonic state, just a little one cell about to divide into two cells and then into four and then into eight and that marvelous experience of the formation of human life. You were there. You were there. You saw me when I was in that state, Lord. You knew me then. When I was fearfully and wonderfully made, you were there. I have never been alone, not even from the first cell. I've never been alone. You've had your eye upon me. You knew my substance. All of this has been held intact. This is recorded. Nothing has been forgotten. What an awesome God he must be. What a mighty God he must be to lower himself down to the likes of us, to reveal himself to us. I trust you plan on living with him for an eternity and don't count him as a stranger because I think a lot of people have been saved by a stranger. They really don't know him. There was meaning when Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. And then in the last days, they shall all learn of him. The knowledge of the Lord will be abroad everywhere. And those who love him will search for him and seek for him. The Apostle Paul, who wrote half the New Testament, you know what he said? He said, I have one thing in this life. It's time for me to go and be with the Lord. I'd much rather be with him than with you, but it's important for you to be here. But he said, 
while I'm here, there's one thing that I desire and only one thing that I want. Only one thing. I want to know the Lord. I want to know the power of his life. I want to know what it was like when he suffered. I want to know everything about him. I want to be so involved with him that I know him like I know you and know me. I want to know him. God is good. In Exodus 15, he said, Who is like unto thee, O Lord, amongst the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? There's nobody like God. And yet, and this is true. I mean, I remember statements I've heard along these lines. When you begin to teach God's people, of all times on a Sunday morning, which you're not supposed to teach on Sunday morning, you're supposed to entertain Sunday morning, but when you begin to teach a congregation of assembled believers, many of them get bored with teaching. I don't care what you're teaching about. And I can't imagine this morning, what is it about God that is boring? Now, the preacher may not be very skillful, may not be a good teacher, may not be a good preacher. But as I've said a lot of times, it's the anointing that breaks the yoke, not the skilled education or the gift of a preacher. It's coming together with a heart that wants to learn and wants to know a hungry. I think you call it hungering and thirsting after what is right. It doesn't take very many people who are hungry for God to bring out everything that God wants to say. God uses vessels to preach just like he used them to write. I mean... Is it possible that God can move upon men to speak? He could move upon them to write, couldn't he? And he could move upon them to speak. You don't have to be a gifted speaker to be a bona fide ministry. I don't know why I'm on this, but it's for somebody. God doesn't call you to preach because you're a gifted speaker. God doesn't call you to preach because you're eloquent in some way or because you know so much. God calls people to preach because he can use them. He can speak through them. He can humble them. He can use them, and, and he can teach his people. They're called gifts. And when you bring a hunger to, for the Lord into a congregation, the anointing will be there, and you'll be taught. You will be. I don't care how skillless the minister is, God will cause you to hear words beyond what the preacher said and it will embed itself in your heart and you will be glad. Now you may say, oh, the preacher. It's not the preacher, it is God. That's the work of his spirit. Just bring an appetite and God will prepare a banquet. He'll feed you. And when he does, I suspect, getting back to the boring that a lot of people have, when you start talking about God and his attributes and his ways, people often say, well, I'm not much into that theological stuff. You know what? I don't think it's theological stuff at all. I think it's truth. And there's only one thing in the Bible that God said that he will ever use to make you free from the things that are holding you down. And that's truth. You shall know the truth. Truth shall make you free. Now, preacher, if you know the truth is going to burn somebody or sting somebody or cut somebody pretty hard, 
and you don't preach it, but you begin to modify it and water it down, you're giving a half-truth. Nobody's ever helped because God doesn't use half-truths to make you free. He uses truth. Speaking the truth in love, one individual to another, is often offensive. Sometimes people think that people like myself are hateful. But you know what? Telling anybody the truth about God or about life, spiritual life, is never a hateful thing to do. It is what is controlling people that considers truth to be hateful and offensive. But only one thing, only one thing in this life is necessary. Remember Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are so tore up about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. You know what it was? Hearing the word of God. Because that's what God uses anywhere with any group of people. That's what he uses to make his people free. To convict you, to bring grief, to say, oh God. Because we need that. I need to know that I'm identified. I need to know that I'm picked out and your sin. What you did last night was wrong. What you said a while ago was wrong. What you've been thinking about this week, the wrong thing. God knows it. We do nothing he doesn't know. We say nothing he doesn't remember. Even the very hairs on your head, even the very grains of sand in the sea. The psalmist said he knows all the stars by name. Oh, if you go up to the Creation Museum, there's a trillion stars. And he knows all of them by name. His knowledge is immediate. He doesn't have to go, um, his knowledge of everything is immediate. He thinks about nothing. There is nothing that can be known to man that he does not know. And he knows it immediately, and he knows it right now. Look again in our text here. Look at verse 2. You know me, what I'm doing and what I'm about to do. You know me when I'm lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. You know what I'm about to say, verse 4. You're around me at all times, verse 5. And verse 6, I can't even comprehend it. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You know why I admit that I'm weak. You know why I back off from what I ain't ready for. You know why I said that. And it's God who gets into that area where you get convicted. He said, you're backing off because you're lazy. You're backing off because you're afraid. You're backing off because you're so concerned about your reputation being tarnished. What would everybody think about me? That's why you backed off. You're just backing off because in your heart you're a rebel. And oh, how offensive it is to say that from a pulpit, but oh, how terrifying it is when God says it to your heart. So no matter what you're trying to do, no matter all of this stuff that you try to go through, praise God has already located you in your heart. You're holding back because you're a rebel by nature. I think, didn't he say that in the Bible in Ephesians 2? We were by nature children of disobedience. By nature, naturally. We seek the easy way out and the smooth way out and the less demanding way out of life and through life. Because we're lazy. We're lazy and we're rebels, and we don't want to work at it. We don't want to have to put down effort. 
oh, we'll work hard to make some money, but we don't want to have to work hard at being spiritual. We just want it to happen. We just go to the right church and whoo, there it comes. You can sit here for 30 years with your arms folded and be as ornery in 30 years from now as you are right now. You can be as hard-headed a person, difficult to get along with, abusive and ugly, and people say, I don't like to be around him because or her because. You can be like that 30 years from now because the Word does nothing. You're in a good place, but nothing's working. But once God opens your eyes, you begin to see. It's like that publican. He could not even lift up his eyes to God. Couldn't do it. You read in the book of Job, he said, oh, God, I've heard of you and all of that, but now I see you. I loathe myself. What a creep I am. Because he humbled himself. Now he can learn who God is. Because he's quit putting himself in such a lofty position that he can't give anything up. Now he can humble himself because God has brought him down. I think it's marvelous the way God works with us. I think it's wonderful the way he does. God does not need to learn anything because he's omniscient. He doesn't have to learn anything. His knowledge is total and it's complete. Acts 15, verse 18, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. There is nothing he doesn't know not a specific minor detail. Not one leaf can fall to the ground. Not even a sparrow. And how many of them are there? Not even a single sparrow in a flock can fall to the ground without God knowing it. He knows all about everything there is to know. Oh, Job said, dost thou know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him which is perfect in knowledge. Perfect in knowledge. He knows all about the animals. You read chapters 39 to 41 of Job. He knew all the animals. Remember, he challenged Job. How does this work? How, why is this animal this way? Why, why? He knew every detail, every fabric of details about the animal world. Again, he knows all the stars. There's nothing up there that he doesn't know. He knows the thoughts of man, what you're thinking right now. All of us at one time, God knows individually, privately, and personally, every thought all of us are thinking at once. Put your finger there for just a moment and look in Ezekiel 11 and verse 5. Ezekiel 11 and verse 5. And notice what he says in Ezekiel 11, verse 5, about your thoughts. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord. Thus have you said, O house of Israel, for I know the thoughts that come into your mind. Now, he's not talking here about what you're saying. He's talking here about what you're thinking. Does God know what you're thinking? Well, if he didn't know what you were thinking, then he wouldn't be all-knowing. Known unto God are all his works. Everything that happened in the past, everything that is happening in the present, and everything that shall happen yet throughout all eternity, God knows now while we're talking. Prophecy being fulfilled is evidence that God knows all things.
what he decreed centuries ago are coming to pass. And he didn't say it hoping it would work or hoping he could find somebody down in history that would cooperate with what he said. It is all planned because he's God. All things are on schedule. That's why we have to be patient with him. He's not finished it with other things that must happen to bring the end of all things to a head. How long, O oh Lord, they said. Just be patient. Be patient. Not only that, but, you know, in Acts chapter 1, you know, they were praying for another apostle. They prayed and said, O oh Lord, thou knowest the hearts of all men. Which of these two have you best chosen? You know our hearts, Lord. When we go out and sin, when we act ugly, when we justify ourselves or speak against other people, you know what's in our heart. You know it before we said it. You know the thoughts the devil speaks to us. You know the devil is a speaker. He does. Even though he's in a spiritual realm, he speaks to you in a, the realm of space. He talks to you. God knows what you're hearing. He knows what you're going to do about it. Listen to what was prayed in First Kings chapter 8. Let me read this. Then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and forgive, and do, and give to every man according to his ways, whose hearts thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, this is the uniqueness, knowest the hearts of all the children of men. Does God know the hypocrite's heart? Does God know the dishonest, cheating, lying, deceiver's heart? The people who put on a show to convince and to capture people's affections, does he know their hearts? Do you believe this? Do you believe that a shyster could get somebody saved? Do you believe an evil person could memorize a sermon and had enough gall to animate it and to somebody could get saved? How can this be? The guy's a crook. He lives with somebody else's wife, spending somebody else's money, and he lies and he cheats and he steals and he's a deceiver. He's been caught this way and that way, and yet when he stands in a pulpit and he preaches, people get saved. How about get healed? Can they get healed? How can this be? Because God honors his word. God watches over his word to perform it. And the person sitting there doesn't know this guy's a shyster or a deceiver. As far as they know, he's the real deal. But they're so involved with what he's saying that God causes the words to come into their heart and affect their lives. They get healed because they have faith. You've got to realize that God knows the hearts of these people. There's coming a day whenever they die. And though they stand before the Lord and say, Lord, look at how many people got saved when I preached. You know what God says to them? I never knew you. That is, we never had a connection. You did your own thing. You gained your own. You had the houses, the cars, all the money, etc., etc. You did all of that, and you were famous and wrote books, and everybody just stood in awe of you. But I could see your heart. You were a hypocrite. You were a deceiver. And heaven wasn't made for people like you. Whew, that makes you stop and think about before you follow any human being anywhere in this life to any degree. 
you better make sure that before you follow anybody, you're following Jesus. And if they speak not, if whoever you follow speaks not according to his word, they have no light. And Jesus described people who are walking in darkness. He said they will both fall into a ditch. Remember that? You need to be careful. But God knows. All of this is a part of his plan. God allows deceivers and deception among his people. In Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, we've seen that in the last couple decades. The prophets are here. The prophets are here. Or the apostles are here. Or the, whatever the new thing is here. And they speak crazy things and things that don't come to pass and people follow it anyway. It's an amazing time. God allows that. If the prophet of the dreamer of dreams comes along and he begins teaching you things that are not in this life, don't follow him. God's testing you. God is testing you. Not to make you critical and standoffish, but on the other hand, I'm following nothing or nobody because other people are. There's a big crowd following this healer or that healer or this guy or that guy. That doesn't mean it's right. Recently in Florida, there was this huge healing, so-called healing movement by Mr. Tattoo and all of these just loose kind of indifferent way. I mean, there's hardly any dignity about anything. Anything. But people like the coolness. That's cool. Let me tell you something. God is not cool. God is holy. And there's a distinction between what is cool and what is holy. And I think man likes cool better than he likes holy because you don't have to do nothing to be cool. Just stay as you are. But to be holy, everything's got to change. And so Mr. Cool came along and they realized after all the deception that came out of that, that people got burned again. They always get burnt because they're looking for somebody to follow. And the one you followed before him was the great one. You can't find him more like that when you followed. A lot of these people fall away. They just drift back into whatever it was before because there's nobody to follow. And God says, I want you to know me. I want you to know me. I want you to know who I am and what I'm like and all the attributes about me. I'm all-knowing, which means I have all wisdom. I not only know all things, but I know what to do with all the things I know. You see, wisdom is the right application of knowledge to the attainment of some goal. And God has always done that. What he has said He's been able to do. Nothing is too hard for him. And he brings together all things as he said that he would. Listen to this. O Lord, how manifold are thy works. In wisdom thou hast made them. All the earth is full of thy riches. That's in Psalm 104. Wisdom is what God says. Remember this, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 20. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. If you're sitting here this morning and God has located you or chosen this particular morning to make you know that he knows exactly what kind of person you are, what kind of thinking permeates you, what motivates you and what you're trying to be, and none of it is of God. When he locates you and your heart smites you as it smote David. Oh, God, you say, I'm just... Is there any hope for me? 
God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. And God knows how to deliver even the weakest and the worst from us from our bondage and from our oppression because he knows how to do that. He knows our uprising, our downsetting. There is nothing that he does not know. God's omniscience is his perfect knowledge from all eternity of all things that can be known. There is nothing that he does not know. His knowledge includes his ability to apply that knowledge with perfect wisdom. Why are we here this morning in this place? Are we in this room this morning because it's a nice socially right thing to do to add God to our lives and at least have a little bit of moral influence in our lives? Or are we here this morning because one day God stirred your heart up and made you aware of your sins? And it bothered you so much that you could not stay like you were, but you wanted relief from that. And the only relief you could get was through being forgiven. And repentance is a gift. And your father knew that there was a day in history, in time, that God who created you and knew you from the womb had marked a particular day for you to be saved. And that day came and he bore down on you. And for the first time in your life, for me it was June 30th, 1968, minutes leading up to 12 o'clock, that I began to be keenly aware of my sinfulness. How really sinful a person I was. I was active in the church and busy about all that, but God made me see my sins. and made me to know that there was nothing that I was doing that could get me to heaven nothing and I couldn't stand it anymore just as I am and waiting not there goes sister Bonnie to rid my soul of one dark blot here comes brother Tom it's just something that God does he knows what you're thinking he knows what's in your heart. And yet you could be here this morning hard to your sins. You could hear the truth. It goes in one ear and out the other. God knows you're like that. And he could do something about it. Could he not? He could. He could if he so chose to have any time a sinner walk in here, they get thoroughly, fully, truly saved. So they never go back the way they used to be. He could. Because only he can. He's unique in his power and his ability. And he put up with us a long time, but boy, there came a day just as I am. And those words penetrated. Oh, God. I am of all men the chief of sinners. I am the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. You might not actually be, but as far as you're concerned, you are, and therefore you need to deal with it. And he lovingly drew you to himself because only he can. Nobody else can do this. I pray that in our life here as a church, that we never get away from the joy of our salvation. That the day that God saved us, our new birth was the beginning of a glorious journey with God. Who is beginning to reveal himself to us and we're beginning to be drawn to him 
and this relationship that brings joy and peace, then the fear of God just settles in our hearts so that we're never the same. We're going to be different. God knows everything. How does his knowledge affect you? Well, I know this. I can't get by with anything. Everything I've ever said or done has been recorded. There's no hidden sins and no secret sins. There's no place I've ever been that he didn't know what I was doing or know where I was. I will know, and a sinner will know when he gets to the judgment bar. A sinner will know that he deserves to be judged and that God is righteous and holy in dispensing judgment. He will know his sins. When you know it now, and you know the judgment is coming at who knows when, it is appointed a man wants to die, and after this, the judgment. Remember? Boy, when you begin to hear about these things that God knows all things. He knows what you said last night. He knows what you were thinking this morning when somebody came in that you thought, look at that. He knew what you were thinking. You kids in school, he knows what you're saying to each other about anybody or anything. He knows. Nothing's hidden. It's all in a book. I've wondered on Judgment Day when there'll be 12 billion people judged. How long will that take? There is no time in eternity. There is no time. There's no such thing as getting tired of standing there because you're number 8,648. It's just when your time comes and your life is read. All things that were done in secret are made known. When you come to the judgment seat of Christ, there's a reason that he'll have to dry away your tears. You see, God speaks to us now. He speaks to our hearts because he knows what we're about to do, what we're planning on doing, what we're thinking about doing. He knows the, the nastiness of our lives. He knows everything. He knows why you watched that program the other He knows why you watched that or read that or looked at that. or He knows why you hang around and check this one out or check that one out. He knows why. Because of lust. And you would never admit that. Oh, no, I didn't mean anything. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You're talking to the wrong person. You're talking to God about trying to justify yourself. There's no lawyers in heaven. You stand you before the judge and what he says, that's it. And nobody can say, well, now, Your Honor, come on now. I mean, after none of that. He knows everything. It's all written down. It's all recorded. Now, why would I, if I know this, why would I live like it's not a big deal if I'm not serving him? Why would I live like it's a big deal if I lie, cheat, steal, or deceive, or mislead? Why would I do that when I know that's going to judge me? I won't do that if the truth of this word slams into my heart and I begin to see what he's saying. I begin to fear God. You believe in the fear of God? As I used to say, my mother loved me more than any woman I knew, but I scared her of her too. Because she could whip hard. She drew a narrow line. Do this, and she come home, she's in a bad mood. The line was real narrow. And the same switch that wore me out and left little red marks on my legs was the same hand that laid on my little fevered brow sometime and she'd sing a song to me. 
Well, God's bigger than my mother. And he's greater in his love for me than she ever would be. But the point of it is, if you know that he knows, then you're going to surrender your life and your will to him because one thing you don't want is judgment. You don't want him to judge you. Now, let's take another thing this morning. We still have time. God's omnipresence. He spoke of that in our text about his presence. Omnipresence is that perfection of God whereby he is personally present everywhere in heaven and earth at the same time. Now, this is difficult for us to comprehend because we live in a dimension that is visible in what we call space. Everything that God created, he created in a space where it can be identified. His omnipresence means that he's done that. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. In Jeremiah chapter 23, and verse 23 and 24, am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Because most people see him that way. He's in heaven. He's somewhere besides where you were last night or yesterday. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? How can God fill heaven and earth? How can it be said of God that he is at all times present everywhere, both heaven and earth? That God does not have to go anywhere to be there. He's already there. See, it's hard for us to grasp that. It's hard for us to understand that. Our text, Psalm 139, that we read earlier, he said, Where shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? He said, If I go to the highest mountain, you're there. If I make my bed in the lowest places, you're there also. The wings of the morning he spoke of. Or the uttermost parts of the sea, even there thy hand shall lead me, and thy right hand shall take hold of me. There is nowhere I can be that you're not there. What about that bar some Christian was in having his evening beer? Was he there? You don't want to admit that, do you? Is there any place you could be that he's not? Is there anything that you could say, think, or do that he doesn't know it? Well, then we're in trouble. We're getting by with nothing. Well, nothing's happened yet. It's being recorded. It's called filling up a cup. There is nowhere that God cannot be. There is nowhere that he isn't. How can he be everywhere at once? Because he is spirit. John 4, 24 says that King James says, For God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God is not a spirit. God is spirit. He is spirit. In his essence, in his being of who he is. He is spirit. And as spirit, he covers the heavens and the earth. He covers it all. 
like I said, he knows all the stars by name. As you speak, he is anywhere out there that anywhere that anything can be, he's there. He knows the substance of all the planets and all the things, all the little specks and microscopic doodads flying through the space out there, all the junk that we've left behind in our little realm above the earth. I think it's a marvelous picture. The earth is like a grain of salt in mid-America. And we got a little bitty astronaut that flew around this little grain of salt. He flew around it lower than the height of the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem is 1,500 miles high about, cubits if you go by that, that's the literal and all that. And we've only been like 300 miles above it, but we're up here going around this little bitty grain of salt, going woo-wee and writing books about how big it is, and God covers it all. And what Jesus said, the Father is greater than I? He's spirit. Jesus has a visible body. God, in relating to us, chose to be like you. But I believe there was always the image of Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, because when God made man, he made him in the image and the likeness of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, concerning him, it says, who being the brightness of his glory. What if I use the word, I think I used this once and you said, no, but what if we use the brightness of his glory as his divine effulgence? Thank you. It's in commentaries. <laughs> of his glorious outshining. Of his, for those who can comprehend it, his brilliance, his gloriousness. It says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. See, they used to carve in something, a design or a symbol or something. The engraver would grave it in some kind of thing, and it made a stamp out of it. And then they would stamp things with that, and that was the image, whether the king's ring or something that symbolized something else. Well, Jesus is the express image of the invisible God, because God is spirit. I think it's in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Who is the image? of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and in earth. No wonder he is at all times everywhere. Visible, does your Bible say visible and invisible? Then all things in the visible realm, in the created order, all the universe, as well as angels and things in the invisible realm were all created by whom? By Jesus Christ. We're in over our heads. but created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Guess who's in control and who has the preeminence? Jesus Christ. And what a tragedy it is for him to knock on the doors of our lives and we not be interested. God, open our eyes and hearts to make us to see who you are and what you offer us and what we can be as we do things your way. But back to his omnipresence. 
One needs to think of God's omnipresence as God's personal presence. He is personally present everywhere. You're never alone. I said that earlier. You weren't alone when you did things you shouldn't have done. He was there. He knew. He watched. It's all recorded. What if we all knew what he saw? What if God told us all? He knows. He knows all things. He is everywhere present at the same time. He is spirit, and his spirit is not limited by space. Again, when God created anything, he created space to put it in. I stand here this morning in the realm of space. I'm standing right here. Nobody else can stand right here. Nothing else can stand exactly where I'm standing there because I am matter and I'm a physical thing and nothing can stand where I stand. You can shove me out of the way and stand there, but you can't stand inside of me. It doesn't work like that because I live in space and everything has an expression in space. But God is spirit. His realm is a spiritual realm. The things like, do you remember the story of Elisha and all of the army that surrounded? Elisha went out one morning and saw this army surrounding them. And he said, oh, no, we're going to be invaded. He went in and told the prophet, said, oh, master, there's a huge army around us. He said, open his eyes. And he went out and he saw the Lord's host, all the angels of the Lord surrounding everything. And it took away his fears, took away his troubles, concerns. Hey, the Lord is here. He was no longer afraid of what he saw because in the spiritual realm, something greater was there. You know, a demon can invade a human life. Evil spirits. In fact, there was one man in the Bible who had a legion of demons. I have seen a spirit once in my life the size of it, oh, about this tall, ugly as sin. And things like that in the spiritual realm go into people. But now when they come in, people don't get bigger, do they? Otherwise, that gathering demoniac would weigh about 980 pounds because he had had all these demons in him. But see, they don't occupy space. So they can be there, and there's no change in the outward appearance because it's in a spiritual realm. God's realm is spirit. He can manifest himself in a visible realm. Angels, for example, can be in a meeting. Now, they may be limited as to what they can do because of how we have shunned what the Bible says about them being present, what we ought to do and how we ought to dress. We talk about the head covering and people's eyes because you don't want to. But anyway, he said, we wear those because of the angels. They're there for a reason. They're called ministering spirits in Hebrews 1 at the end of that chapter. But they're very limited as to what they can do, I suspect, because of our indifference to what the Bible says about it. But they're there. We have often entertained angels unaware. You didn't know that guy you gave 50 cents to or a dollar to or that person you did or said something to, ministering, trying to minister. That was an angel. They can look like a human being because God is able in his dimension to do both. But God is everywhere. In that dark room at night, he's there. That dark walk home at night, walking to your car in the parking lot, he is there. Did he not say, I will be with you 
If he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, does that apply to all of us? Then wherever we are, he is. And what he promised then, he could still do for all of us at the same time. If there were thousands surrounding you, all you need is one angel. Or just a, a smile from God, and you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, for thou art with me. I cannot tell you in the study of this, the reading about this over and over and over again, I cannot tell you how much inside, spiritually speaking, how much there is a desire to erupt spiritually. Just, oh, God, whom should I fear? Of what should I be afraid? If God be for us, who can be against us? Greater is he that is in me. Who is he? Let me tell you about it. Let's teach about who he is, about his omnis. Let's teach all the omnis of God. And then let's sit back and go, whoa. And then let's bow our head and say, God, make me to know that. Like Jeremiah said when I started, he said, let me boast that I know you and understand you, that you are God. Oh, God. And Jesus is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. And he is able to relate individually to each one of us at all times, anywhere. We don't go somewhere to meet Jesus. Jesus goes home with you. Oh, hallelujah. Therefore, as our loving God, he knows the way that we should go. He gives us thousands of promises. He provides for all of our needs. And when we turn from him, he must judge us. We have no defense against God. If our day should come and we have just kept putting things off, well, no, I know, I mean, I ain't that bad. We keep putting things off. What do we say when we stand before him? We have no defense. In fact, your mouth will be sealed. You have nothing you can say. The righteous judge of all the earth who spoke to you once, twice, or a hundred times, who moved upon you and convicted you several times, and yet you kept making excuses excuses and whatever. He's the one who stands before you and he says, now it is time for judgment to begin. Your sin has found you out. Closing. If you have an honest heart this morning, if you're sitting in here before me with an honest heart, at least right now maybe very sincere feelings, If you fear the Almighty God, if you want to fear the Almighty God, then turn to the last two verses of Psalm 139. If you really are thinking about some of these things now, maybe this is the moment in your life God has called you together to speak to you about these things. Maybe it is. I don't know that it is. I don't know that it isn't. Verse 23. Can you say this this morning? Even though you're a little bit hesitant because, man, you're still young, you got 
some oats yet to sow and you're pretty or you're handsome and you think following God means you have to give up all of these worldly things, maybe for a moment, just for a moment before we go, we can read verse 23 and 24 and take it home with us this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Or Psalm 26, 2 says, examine me. In verse 24, and see if there be any wicked way in me. What will you do if you do see wickedness? Sweet wickedness. Kind, soft-spoken indifference to God. Nice, loving indifference to God. What will you do? Because anything that's indifferent to God is wicked. Because it glorifies the devil. It doesn't glorify God. So see if there's any wicked way in me. And do what? And lead me in the way. Turn the page to Psalm 143 and verse 10. And we'll pray. Teach me to do thy will. For you are my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for your name's sake, for your righteousness' sake. Bring my soul out of trouble. And of thy mercy, cut off mine enemies and destroy all them that affect my soul, for I am thy servant. He has graven you, as Isaiah 49 said, he has graven you on the palms of his hands. And he will not forget you, nor will he ever leave you alone until he has perfected you. It begins with a single day and a moment in your life in which you say, I will. Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, as we used to sing the song, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days and let them flow in ceaseless praise. We have been together here for a long time, Lord, and yet there's a lot of work that needs to be done in all of us. We're aware this morning that we're getting by with nothing, that everything is remembered, everything is recorded, and the books are being filled up. Give us an honest heart this morning to deal with our, our lives, with our convictions, and our needs, our spiritual needs. I ask you as pastor to bless our parents, as parents to bless the children, children to bless the babies that nobody can come here without being affected by your spirit, to be drawn unto you and to know you. Praise be to God. Thank you, Lord. Amen. God is good. If today there is a stirring of some sort in your heart, it's a signal. It's a a moment maker. It's God calling you to go somewhere and be still for a while and let him talk to you about life and where you're headed and what you're doing, who he is and what you should be doing. God really is good. Amen. Hallelujah.